0: Thank you. It's so good to be here, uh, especially with our moving truck arriving yesterday. We got into town on uh, Monday afternoon, and so we've been camping with air conditioning and toilets uh, for the last week, and so it's, it's a very good thing to sleep on a bed this morning. I especially want to make sure that I extend a thank you uh, to Bishop Ed uh, for creating this opportunity for me, for my wife, Danielle. Uh, this is um, really... <laughs> an amazing thing for me to be standing here this morning because after 43 years in one church community, 43 years in one church community, I have now come to you. Um, So it is an adventure for me, it is an adventure for my wife Danielle, we've been married, it will be 22 years in September on the 15th, and so it is, uh, she gets the credit for that. Uh, (laughs) Um... But uh, she, her dad pastored also uh, in a church just north of the Bronx, and uh, she went from her dad's church to our church, so this is her third church community. And so these are exciting times for us and for our girls, and we are very happy to be here. I also want to extend a special thanks to Nate, to Paul, to the staff, to everybody who's been bringing us meals and keeping us very well fed this week. We very much appreciate it, especially in our sparse New digs there, so we're very much looking forward to getting to know you guys uh, over the course of the next uh, few months and get to know your families and to to really love and grow to love the sanctuary community. Uh, This morning, my first sermon as your new rector pastor. Some of us, anybody find the word rector still? It's kind of like, yeah. So we'll we'll. I'm I'm the rector. I'm Pastor Mark. How's that? I'm Pastor Mark. This morning, my first sermon here, uh, I'm reminded of the first Sunday morning sermon I ever preached in my life. And it was 25 years ago this summer, 25 years ago July, I preached my first sermon in a remote village in northwest Tanzania. And I uh, preached from this same text that you just heard. So, as a good Pentecostal, I don't believe in coincidences. Uh, I think God was up to something 25 years ago when I preached for the first time, and I think the Holy Spirit uses the lectionary in very mysterious ways, and it just so happens that the Old Testament reading this morning is the same text I preached for the first time 25 years ago. It's also interesting to me that the first time Dr. Chris Green ever came to our church in New York, it was for a conference we were having three years ago. And one of the sermons that was delivered at that conference was this very text, and it was sort of the highlight, no offense to Dr. Green, uh, it was sort of the highlight of the conference, and we've been talking about it for three years. And uh, with that in mind, I want to start the sermon at the end of the story. I want to start the sermon at the end of the text where we find our patriarch, Jacob, limping, it says. He's limping because of this hip, right? Right? But at the same time, it says the sun rose upon him. He's limping, but the sun is up in the sky. Isn't it interesting that after an encounter with God, the night has passed. The night is over. The sun is shining. Jacob has been blessed. That famous line in this story, I will not let you go. Until you bless me. He's been blessed, and yet he's limping. He wasn't limping before he encountered God, but he's limping after God blesses him? Could it be that maybe God encounters are not the simple, straightforward, happy sorts of things that we all long for and we all ask for, but that when we get them, it's a little bit more mysterious and it's a little bit more complicated? yes the sun's up in the sky Man, I'm limping I'm not quite as agile as I was before I encountered this man there might be a little bit of discomfort a little bit of limitation because I wrestled this last night I think this matters to a lot of us this morning in the room at least I'm hoping this resonates with your heart because on the one hand I think we can have a genuine sense over the course of our life. We can have a genuine sense that we've encountered God. We've heard from God. We've felt the presence of God. And yet at the same time, we live with things that are unresolved. We're living with a limp. We can walk, but we don't quite walk great. The sun is shining. There are a lot of blessings, a lot of good things in our lives. Yet, we limp. Over the course of the last three years or so. I feel like God has been pulling me deeper into the idea of tension. And that the life of faith, to a great extent, is a life of tension. Where things don't get resolved on this side of eternity. I also begin to think now that maybe limps that our limitations, that the things that we feel like might be holding us back are not something that God overcomes. They might be something God actually gives us. I'm wondering, could it be that God isn't doing great things through us despite our limitations, but actually because of our limitations? Could it be that the very things we want to rebuke and get rid of are the very things God is excited to see. That the very things that we curse and we condemn and we want to sort of bind and cast away are the very things God has brought into our lives. And I think this matters because all of us who have those limitations can be tempted to wonder if something is wrong with us. Almost as if if we had more faith, the limitations would go away. I have very good news for all of us this morning. Your limitations are not necessarily a sign that something's wrong with you. It's not necessarily an indictment that you don't have enough faith. It might actually be because God loves you and God involved in your life. (laughs) I, I couldn't help but think, now I'm gonna betray my age and a little bit of my background here, but I couldn't help but think that when Bill Gaither wrote that old song, He Touched Me, he wasn't thinking about Jacob. (laughs) If you can picture or hear Elvis singing that song in your ear, I don't think they were thinking about this kind of touch when they said, He touched me. And oh, the joy that floods my soul. Oh, the gimp. Oh, the limp. Oh, the hassle that is now in my life because he touched me. We know that Jacob was slick. He was cunning. He was a manipulator of the highest order. And it would seem to me that the sharpness of Jacob's mind was only matched by the intensity of his ambition. In my imagination, if Jacob lived in America today, he would either be involved in corporate takeovers in New York City, or he'd be involved in salacious scandals in Los Angeles. He's that guy who's all up into everything, and he's spinning, and he'd probably be in Washington, D.C., too, right? We could throw him all into the loop there, maybe casting odds in Vegas. I don't know, but Jacob is a manipulator and a supplanter of the highest order, and we know that's even what his name means, right? Jacob didn't think twice about strong-arming his dying brother out of his inheritance. And neither did he think twice of deceiving and duping his dying, blind father. This is who Jacob is. Isn't it interesting that God, in self-referential terms always refers to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's probably for another day. I'd probably stop at Abraham, but that's just me. Here's what else we know about Jacob, though. Jacob is an heir to one of the greatest promises that has ever been offered to a human being. He's the grandson of Abraham, the one to whom Yahweh comes. And makes a covenant in Genesis 12. He makes great promises that he would have descendants. Greater than the stars of the sky. Greater than the sands of the seashore. Jacob's grandfather is a friend of Jehovah. Jacob's grandfather is the father of a miracle baby named Isaac. Jacob was in on that sort of promise. That sort of covenant. And yet because of the trickery, because of the scheming, because of the manipulation, Jacob finds himself on the run from his brother Esau, right? Two of our most famous brothers in all the Bible. If we had to list brothers, we think of Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau. The list is not good, right, starting there. That's not a good way to start off, but that's what people think of. And many scholars have even suggested that the Torah... It really encapsulates the struggle of brothers throughout. Ishmael and Isaac. Even Moses and Aaron. And Esau and Jacob, these twins, Esau being the elder, of course, these twins who have such strife, they're so different. And Jacob swindling him, Esau, out of his physical inheritance and his spiritual blessing finds himself on the run for his life because Esau has promised, has publicly stated, I am going to kill Jacob. So Jacob leaves the land of promise and goes back to the land of his mother's family. We know that he gets married, not once, but twice and has now a brood of sons in tow. This Jacob has to now go back home and is almost certain he's going to bump into Esau. And he actually gets word. He's trying to, I don't know if you've ever tried to deal with your past mistakes this way, but he starts to send out feelers. Like, are they still upset with me? Do we think there might still, it's been a long time, maybe they forgot about it. So he sends out these emissaries to See, is Esau even in town? Is Esau around? And when he sends them, sure enough, they run into Esau. And Esau's like, oh, my brother's here? Tell my brother I'm coming to see him. (laughs) This this, this goes from bad to worse. Now it's not just that I'm going to meet this man who's promised to kill me. This man knows I'm in town, and he's coming for me. He's coming to see me. So in an act of great courage, Jacob says... Wife number one, you take the kids and go this way. Wife number two, you take the kids, go that way. I'm going to stay here by myself. Now, some of our scholars like to suggest that Jacob wanted to get alone to pray. That's fine. We don't really know. The scriptures don't tell us. In my opinion, if I were a lawyer looking at this story, I would say based on Jacob's track record, He's spinning his own wife and kids to say, well, if Esau finds this group and kills them, I'll at least have this group over here. That's what it looks like to me. Now, you can, you can interpret that as you will, but it seems as if this is that Jacob has discovered his worst fears are true. Unless you're a... a, a A demigod or something like that, I'm guessing that all of us in this room have fears. We have things that we're afraid of. How do we respond to our fears? I don't think fear in and of itself is the problem, right? I think it's the way we respond to fear. And I'm I'm looking at this story, and what I see here is Jacob being confronted by his fears, by his failures by his past and by his future, he's being confronted. Esau for Jacob, Esau represents all the skeletons in his closet. And I think the details in the story matter as well, because it says, number one, that the story is set at night. So when we read these sorts of texts, they're written to be read aloud and heard they're the, probably the summary of years of oral tradition and years of oral telling and hearing these stories and so when you're telling a story the details matter you can imagine for generations they're hearing this story on how the patriarch jacob finds himself at night there are, there's no electricity there are no batteries there's no solar power When it's dark, it's dark. And you don't have control over the darkness. The darkness is dark on its own terms. What's interesting about darkness is it symbolizes confusion. It symbolizes uncertainty. It symbolizes vulnerability. Has anybody ever been in a hotel room and in the middle of the night decided you need to get up and do something? But because you're unfamiliar with the room and the lights are not on, the smallest toe on your foot has had a collision course with the sharpest piece of metal in the hotel room. Has anybody had something like this? You know what I'm talking about. And at that point, you call out the name of the Lord (laughs) in vain, in vain. Darkness. It's generally not a helpful thing. The second thing we need, the second detail that's important is that Jacob is alone. What do we know that God says in Genesis? It is not good for people to be alone. It's not good. Why? Because it's in community that we find comfort. It's in community we find the encouragement to face those fears that are sitting in all of our hearts. It's in community that we find protection. It's the reason why cities are so valuable in the ancient world. There's protection, safety in numbers. So here is Jacob being confronted by his past and his future, by his worst fears. He's in the dark, and he's alone. And I want to say that in this moment, what Jacob is thinking, what Jacob is concerned about is self-preservation. I don't think that's a stretch. Whenever we find ourselves in the dark, whenever we're feeling like we're alone, whenever our fears seem to be pressing in on us, I think the number one human inclination is self-preservation. Whenever we're facing an unknown reality, take a new rector, for example. That was a joke, by the way. There'll be a, a lot of those bad jokes over the coming months, I promise. Or whether it's New Yorkers living in Oklahoma. With tornadoes the first weekend you're there. <laughs> yes, thank you. Welcome, Tulsa. But here's, here's our instincts almost always go to preservation. Jacob's made it clear that he's afraid of Esau because Esau has promised to kill him. Jacob has, look at this, he schemed to get the birthright and the blessing. Those are technical terms, sort of, for like this physical inheritance, but also this metaphysical, spiritual sort of blessing, becoming the figurehead of the family. He schemed to get both of these things, but it appears that having those things isn't enough to bring him peace. Isn't it interesting? the things that we strive for in our own strength, the things that we acquire as a result of our own cunning and our own ability and our own strategizing, those things are not enough to bring us peace when our past comes calling. Those things will not be enough to keep us secure and safe when our fears are confronting us. Jacob has the birthright. Jacob has the blessing, and yet he's alone in the dark trying to preserve himself. And it is in this setting that the mysterious man comes on the scene and wrestles with Jacob. I find it a little bit humorous just to think, how did this start? Is Jacob sleeping? Is Jacob staring up at the night sky? Does he hear a crack of a branch or some gravel? being, you know, a foot in the gravel. Does it, how does it happen? And th- does the guy, like, spring on him? It's like, surprised. Ah, and he's scared, and oh my gosh. Or does the guy say, hey, I'm gonna wrestle you? Like, how does this start, where it's like, okay, just so you know over there, I'm coming for you, and I'm, I don't know how this plays out, but it's very interesting to str- I mean, imagine just wrestling a stranger in the middle of the night. It's a very strange sort of thing. Like, I think we, we read the story and we just say, oh, yeah, he wrestled. But think about it. Like He's laying there in his sleeping bag looking at the sky, and a guy is on him, like, grabs him. Okay, wow, this is interesting, sir. Guess you want to fight. Well, we have to say the obvious at, the, at this wrestling scene. The man here has been understood by generations and centuries of interpreters to be a Jesus figure. Now, whether it's Jesus appearing as the angel of the Lord, if you will, or if it's a prefiguring of Christ, and it's because at the beginning of the story, a man wrestles with Jacob, and at the end of the story, that man says, you've wrestled with God. And so many interpreters see this man, this mysterious wrestler, as the Christ enigma, as the one who is the God-man, this one who has the dual natures, This is amazing because you would think if this is Jesus, Jesus would not have a problem pinning Jacob in a little bit of time. And our text says that he could not prevail against Jacob. And that really bothers me, especially when you come from like a little bit of fundamentalism, like God can do whatever God wants to do. If he wants to pin Jacob, he can. You can't. It's theologically incorrect to say that he couldn't prevail, and so I decided to go after that word and try and dig into that word a little bit because the text, of course, was Hebrew, and I think there's maybe a helpful way to look at this, and that you can parse that verb to say it this way: he couldn't get himself to prevail. In other words, it's not that he didn't have the ability, but his heart was so for Jacob that he couldn't get him. He would knock him to the ground, but he won't destroy him. God's heart is for you this morning. The title of my message is, and this is late, it's probably up on the screen, The God Who Strives. That was good, right? You like those savvy introduction? We're almost done. (laughs) The God Who Strives is, listen, the God who can't get himself To prevail against you. He'll wrestle with you. But it's not in his heart. He's for you. It's not in his heart to destroy you. It's not in his heart to break you. In that sort of way. He comes into this night scene. And he wrestles this God. Who has the ability to speak reality into existence. Seemingly doesn't have the ability To prevail against Jacob. Now it's interesting. He touches his hip. And he puts it out of socket. So clearly. He has technical ability to take him out. But he does it, And this is where the mystery gets deeper. And I think this is a glimpse of God. The God who strives with us. Even though he doesn't have to. He wrestles. Listen from the night to the daybreak, to the breaking of the dawn. He wrestles the whole night. And when he looks at his watch and he says, I gotta go, Jacob's like, I don't think. it's like, okay. And he touches his hip and it's out of socket. This is the God who C.S. Lewis describes as the one who cannot ravish, he can only woo. This is the God who will not overcome us because he wants to woo us. He's striving with us. It's sort of like a holy whining and dining. Just more painful. He's a God who blesses us not by eliminating our difficulties but by entering into them with us. He's a God who interrupts our self-preservation projects And he wrestles us back into our purpose. You see, I don't think we can pursue preservation and purpose at the same time. You cannot pursue the preservation of yourself as you are and the purposes of God for your life at the same time. Because the purposes of God are a threat to who you are now. All the self-help guys are going to tell you the same thing, right? You can't become the person you were destined to be unless the person you are ceases to exist. To whatever extent we're trying to preserve things as they are, we are the people who are denying a greater purpose on our lives. How many of us have quit before the dawn? How many of us have been encountered by God mysteriously in our night seasons, in our lonely seasons, in our fearful seasons, and God wants to wrestle, and if we even start with God, we don't make it but a little while. We're like those disciples in the garden who couldn't tarry but an hour sometimes. How many of us have mistaken this man who's wrestling with us for an enemy rather than a blesser? How many of us have been so afraid, so concerned for our own safety that we forgot the promises of God? The midnight interruption reveals a God who is so relentlessly committed to the good that he has promised to do to us and through us that he will not stop Until he wrestles us through to our transformation. If we're going to get into our purpose, we're almost always going to get there through a wrestling match. And the wrestling only happens because God is willing to strive with us. He's patient. He's long-suffering. His blessing that he wants to put into our lives is twofold. First, look at this he asks Jacob to tell him his name. Newsflash, God never asks questions because he lacks information, right? So in this instance, Jacob is not informing God, he is confessing to God because his name is an indictment. His name means manipulator and supplanter. And this exchange of confession is one in which this powerful sacramental reality reveals the very presence of God because God has the power to change names. He has the authority to look at a Jacob and say, you are no longer a manipulator, you are a prince of God. What's interesting here is that God was willing to strive with Jacob and he is now willing to rename him and to pull him back into his place within the purpose of God, to establish a holy nation. Nations have princes. Nations have rulers. Suddenly, when he says, your name is Israel, this is not just about Jacob. This is about the promise God made to Abraham. I'm going to establish a nation in the world through which all of the other nations will be blessed. And you're going to be a prince, not a supplanter, not a manipulator. You see, Jacob is the one who takes blessings. Israel is the one who receives blessings. Jacob is the one who has acquired things because of his ability. But Israel is the one who receives things because of his humility. This is so countercultural for us. Because we live in a culture that rewards ambition, not humility. The great things that God wants to do to you and through you, the purposes of God for you personally and corporately are entered into by humility and surrender. Not by being clever, slick, or manipulative. And all we must do is be willing to stay in the fight with God. And at some point he's going to ask us, what is your name? What is your name? identity right now who are you what is the sum total of your past and your history and God is going to look at us and he's going to say but I call you isn't it interesting that in revelation it describes the age to come and in that age all of us will have a new name all of us will have a new name and there's a second blessing here And that is, and this is the oddest blessing of all, that the God who strives with us is the God who cripples us. He's the God who weakens us. And this has to seem ridiculous. To say that this is a blessing, that a God encounter leaves me weaker than when I came. But we must remember this. We are citizens of an upside-down kingdom. And it is a kingdom ruled by a crucified Lord. His victory came not through conventional power. It came through surrender. It didn't come through strength. It came through weakness. Listen, to the extent that God strives with us, he weakens us. But but to the extent that he weakens us, he is conforming us to the image of his Son. Listen, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that this son was the one who emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's a question. Compared to the divine nature, how much weaker is the human form that Jesus embraced? And this Jesus is the one who is slain from the foundations of the earth. This is Jesus embodying divine purpose. How? By becoming weak. This holy nation of weakness of which we are members is exactly what God has ordained to change the world. to whatever extent we're not strong, we're not competent, we're not powerful, we're not smart, God says, yes, I can work with that. I can work with that. Think about it. Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians 1, writing to a very affluent metropolitan community in Corinth, he says, God's weakness is stronger than human strength. What does he go on to say? God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God's walking up and down the aisles looking for weakness. And when he can't find it, he'll wrestle you into it. He'll strive with you. He'll stay with you. He'll basically play with you, right? Because it's playing. He has the power to dislocate your hip right away. But he'll stay in the fight until... We say we cannot let go. Our weakness is integral. It is not incidental to how God's purposes are fulfilled in the earth. And if all of this seems odd, it is. If it seems strange, it's because it's holy. I think we're on to something. We feel out of our element. We don't feel particularly agile in a social setting or a work setting, a church setting. God's got us where He wants us. Paul concludes his second letter to the church in Corinth with these words Three times I appealed to the Lord about this thorn in my flesh, that it would leave me. It was Paul's limp. But God said to me, My grace is sufficient. For you, for power, is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. See, this is the blessing. The blessing is that the God who strives is the God who cripples. The God who strives is the God who gives you thorns in the flesh. The God who strives is the God who leaves you weaker because of the encounter. Because we're looking more Like Jesus. So, in our darkness and our solitude, we wrestle with the God who strives until daybreak. We don't rush to get to the conclusion, we don't quit because things are taking too long. We confess our Jacobness. Yes, that is my name. And we hold on to receive what we could not acquire the sort of blessing that we could never scheme our way into. We cry out, we will not let go until this striving God blesses us on his terms, in his time, and for his glory. Our journey to this table every Sunday is our spirit-empowered participation in the struggle of the man, Jesus, the one true and faithful Israelite to whom Jacob was pointing. You see, Jesus in the story is not just the one who wrestles with Jacob. He is Jacob. That's the beauty of this story, is that Jesus is really both figures. Jesus is the one who is weakened by taking on human flesh. Jesus is the one who in his sweat in Gethsemane, in his silence, before Pilate and in his groans from the cross, we see a man wrestling. And we see a man, it says in John 13, who loved them till the end. He was striving until the end. And that's where our capacity to strive is found. If you feel like giving up, if you feel like you're tired, if you feel like you want to just give in to the fear and try and save your own skin... Don't try to save yourself. What does Jesus say? If you try to save your life, you will lose your life. But if you give it up for his sake and the Gospels, you will find it. Our capacity to strive with God and with man is found in Christ where our lives are hidden. He is the literal embodiment of what it means to shun self-preservation. He was never trying to protect himself. He was always trying to lay himself down. And he's the one who embodies for us how do we live in this holy tension of a limp in our leg and the sun in the sky. He's the way back to our purpose. He is the way back to what God destined for you personally and for us as a community. Let's bow our heads. Almighty God, I pray for each one of us who have things in our past that we feel like they hold us back we don't want anybody to know about things in our future that we feel like are coming for us and threatening us I pray for those who feel like they're in the dark a lot of uncertainty I especially pray for those who feel like they're alone you are the God who strives You are the God who enters our darkness, enters our isolation, enters our fears, and you transform us by your grace. May our hearts be filled with faith to believe what we don't see with our eyes, to hope for things that don't make any sense, because you are relentless in your love, you are faithful to your promises and your purposes will never fail.